Hey, welcome to night school. Uh, no, not every night's a school night. This is night school. Still no January or July. It doesn't matter what month it is. We're beyond months here. We're beyond months here. We're beyond months. M-U-N-S. Months. M-U-N-C-E. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, still no every night's a school night episode. At this point, maybe what's happening is night school is just completely usurping the throne, and there's really not going to be an every night's a school night ever again. The show's just been consumed. I'd rather talk about how Hollywood should cast their movies or not cast them. I'd rather make uh, comments that'll be grossly misinterpreted and used against me. I'd, I'd much rather do that than do a nice old-fashioned music show. A pseudo-radio show. It's coming, folks. It's coming. But I was driving home tonight, speaking of music, speaking of that crazy thing called music. I was driving home, and I was listening to Depeche Mode, Some Great Reward. And there's that song, Blasphemous Rumors. And I'm terrible with lyrics. I'm terrible with song titles. I could... You know, I could tell you all about some of my favorite records. I could tell you about the background sounds between songs. You know, the someone drops something in the background on accident, you know, at the very end of the take. I could tell you where those sounds appear, but sometimes I don't even know the lyrics to some of my favorite music. Even music where the lyrics are clearly audible. There's something about my brain that just doesn't absorb it. Whereas sometimes I'll meet people who just know that shit. They'll hear a song once and they can tell you all the lyrics. I don't know what it is. It's almost like people have uh, slightly different skills and, uh, you know, natural abilities. That's a blasphemous rumor. Nobody's any different than anybody else. It's all a trick. But blasphemous rumors on some great reward has that well-known lyric. I've heard people recite it. It's catchy. Very, very catchy. It's very sing-songy, but the lyric, and again, I might get this wrong because I'm not a lyrical person, but uh, it's, you know, I don't mean to start any blasphemous rumors, but I'll bet God has a sixth sense of humor. And in the end, I'll find him laughing. Or, and when I die, I'll find him laughing. It's something like that. Uh, but I don't want to start any blasphemous rumors, but I think that God's got a sixth sense of humor. And when I die, I expect to find him laughing. I just looked it up just so I had it right. You know, accuracy is important. Precision is important. I don't want to misquote a lyricist, especially not Depeche Mode, whoever in the band wrote those lyrics. I don't even know the names of the individual band members. The reason I'm a, I'm a Depeche Mode fan, and I became a fan way late in the game, just in the last probably five years, I would guess, probably about five years ago, yeah. Uh, I was staying at a friend's house and staying in the basement, and I woke up to just something great, you know, being played on the stereo upstairs. And of course, I was familiar with Depeche Mode. I knew, you know, the songs that you're going to hear in life. You know what I mean? Like just the the, the typical Depeche Mode songs that you're going to hear just going about your life, but never seeking it out. You know what I mean? Shit that's on the radio, shit that other people are playing and passing but hearing it in this basement, just hearing it, I don't know what it was. Sometimes hearing something from another room or like from a lower level in a house actually makes the music sound more mysterious and good. I don't know what it is, but it worked. Whatever happened worked because I went upstairs and I was like, I got to know what this is. And it was you know, some Depeche Mode album that I hadn't heard. And since then, I've been a fan and it's great car music for me. And it's not a... 
You know, it's not a second class of music. You know, car music isn't a bad thing. I think car music is, at this point, most of what, most of the music I listen to is car music. I don't really listen to as much music at home as I did years ago. Uh, but with Depeche Mode, I became a fan at that point. And since then, it is, it, it's a regular soundtrack, you know, for driving, for going about my day. But yeah, that those lyrics are what I was talking about. Uh, you know, and, and as far as like Depeche Mode goes, just to finish that thought, as if I ever finish a thought, but uh, just to go back to Depeche Mode, you know, I don't know what it was that kept me from getting into them. You know, there's definitely a tone to it. You know, I, I like gothy sort of stuff. I, I do like new wave. I like electronic music, you know, and they put it all together very well. It's very, you know, it's pop as well. There's, there's a heavy pop element, obviously, to De- Depeche Mode. Uh, but it was just something about the tone. I couldn't quite at that point in my life, you know, when I was younger. I don't. It just didn't really. That sort of sound, the sound of his voice alone, didn't really fit <laughs> how I saw my life. I guess. Uh, but anyway, uh, the lyrics. You know, I don't. I don't mean to start any blasphemous rumors, but I think that God's got a sixth sense of humor, and when I die, I expect to find him laughing. That's a fun lyric, you know. There's, it's no wonder that it's a catchy and memorable one, even for someone like me who can't remember lyrics. And uh, what I like about it, too, is it's not that blasphemous. And the reason it's not blasphemous is because it openly acknowledges the existence of God. And I don't, is there any blasphemy to the idea of God laughing or having a sick sense of humor? I don't know. I guess that's the blasphemous part, is saying it's sick. It's sick. But I think in this context, coming from Depeche Mode, I think it's, you know, somewhat complimentary. Blasphemous Rumors, though. That's a heavy-duty song title. I like it. But yeah, acknowledge, I feel like if you acknowledge the existence of God, a God of some sort, and uh, you, you know, theorize that he could be laughing, I don't, I don't find that blasphemous. I find that to be someone who's just interested in the many facets of what God is or may be. And I imagine God's laughter is something you feel rather than hear. And I feel like certain experiences in life give you little, you know, they give you that sensation. I'm not going to say you hear it because I do, as I said, you know, feel that, you know, I, I believe it's probably more of a feeling, you know, the feeling of God laughing. And I can't help but feel that way when weird things happen in life. When things feel like they were arranged just for you so that you would cross their path at any given time and uh, be surprised or, you know, you find something strange or funny or coincidental or synchronistic. All of that stuff to me, it always feels like a wink from somewhere and something I can't fully comprehend, but I still get this sensation, again, a feeling of a wink. And I'm someone, you know, when I go about my day-to-day life, I'm not a feeling-oriented person. You know, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm a logical person, that I can follow, you know, a solid train of logic, right or wrong. I, I'd like to understand the logic behind things. Uh, but when it comes to things outside of that practical day-to-day existence, and I do feel like there's a huge component of life that goes beyond that. If you feel like all life is, is hands-on, you know, day-to-day practical experiences, and you're happy with that, that's cool, but I feel like that's only one part of living this life and whatever it is that surrounds that life. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I feel like uh, 
I, I feel like feeling, no, but I, I do, I feel like feeling is really the only way you can experience some of these things. And that wink, you know, feeling like someone, something, whatever it is, is winking at you, is arranging things in such a way to amuse you, amuse it, amuse, you know, just keep keeping one person amused is basically a way of keeping the whole world amused. You know, uh, it's one of those things, it's just like, if you make one person angry, you're going to make a lot of people angry. It's sort of that same idea, in my opinion, where if you ruin one person's day, there's a good chance they're going to ruin at least one other person's day. Like if someone's boss just like comes down way too hard on them on a given day, there's a good chance that person's going to go home and take it out on someone, their wife or kids or just someone they come into contact with. And I feel like it's the same thing, because I know when I'm amused by some little twist of fate, big or small, and I feel like the universe has winked at me, or God is laughing, whether it's, you know, a sick thing, whether it's, as Depeche Mode says, you know, whether it's a, you know, a sick mode of humor that God has, I don't know, but there are times when I do feel like I get the slightest hint of that out there. And when I'm amused, you know, when I'm amused through that process, I feel like I'm more likely to, you know, first, you know, feel okay and feel good about this whole existence. But I also want to amuse other people. And I don't necessarily mean by like approaching people, making jokes. I just want my presence in the world to be more amusing than it is not. I want it to be, I want to offer more than I take away at the very least. And one way you can do that, obviously, is, you know, by not being a jerk, by not ruining someone's day intentionally. But I do like the, you know, the, you know, Depeche Mode acknowledges God's existence in this song, because there's a part of me that reads these lyrics or hears these lyrics and thinks, you know, it's very teenage. It sounds like something a teenager would say, God's got a sick sense of humor. God's, God's got a sick sense of humor. And, you know, it sounds like something some kid would say, some kid who's rebelling. But I think it goes beyond that, because I think a teenager would be like, God doesn't exist. Oh, you're talking to, like, uh, you know, some uh, some old man in the sky. You think, you know, teenagers love to challenge, you know, theological... <laughs> teenagers have, the, you know, the just the most insightful theological questions. Sometimes they do, you know, and I think it's great that teenagers and anybody who's raised in a, especially a traditional religious environment questions it. And if, if it's a non-traditional religious environment, they should question it too, because it's probably a cult. Um, but still, it's like there's other people who, you know, it's like they... They think they're putting their foot down by being like, God doesn't exist, or God's this, God's cruel. Oh, if God exists, why is he such an asshole? And it's like, you're only acknowledging the negative in that, you know, you're not acknowledging God's responsibility and, you know, the positive experiences of your life, or the positive aspects of existence that you observe, you know, so you're only acknowledging the bad things, you know, oh, there's, there's genocide, there's horror, there's absolute horror throughout the world. Uh, you know, uh, it seems like with a roll of the dice, tragedy just happens everywhere all the time. But that's, you know, just a great example of negativity bias, where you're only seeing the negative aspects of existence. And it's because we have a very sharp reaction to those things. They, 
almost demand a response. Whereas the positive things out there, you know, we might experience them, we might have that experience of joy, but we don't acknowledge it in the same way. You know, whereas something negative, we there's something that almost compels us to complain. And if we can't complain in that moment, say it is our boss came down on us and we're really mad and we want to complain about it. You know, we have to bottle that up until we get home and then tell, you know, our wives or whoever, our friends, our family all about it. And, uh, you know, they probably don't want to hear about it. Even if, even if they're supportive, they probably don't want to hear about it. But if they're supportive, they will. But that even has a limit, and that kind of thing can take its toll. But that's what we do when something bad happens. If, if our boss was an asshole, if somebody did something fucked up to us, we want to vocalize it. We want to keep it alive in this weird way. And thinking about like sick sense of humor, I mean, I think that's kind of a sick thing we end up doing when something bad happens to us. Is like we find ways to keep it alive because it gives us some sort of meaning. Like, that happened to me. And there's some things that are so horrible that you can't help but hold on to them. They can't help but live inside of you, you know, serious traumas, things like that. But there are a lot of shitty things that just happen to us throughout our day that we hold on to, that we allow to, you know, just infiltrate our mind and our, you know, our spirit, you know, for lack of a better word, our spirit. Uh, you know, we do though. We, you know, it's like someone cuts you off. You're having an okay day, and someone cuts you off, and it's it's easy to get consumed by that in that moment because it's happening to you right now. And that's actually a weird form of living in the moment. Getting angry is definitely a you know, it's living in the moment. You know, when you get mad, and get and anger gives you a whole lot of meaning. And I think that's why we complain too, because complaint, you know, while it might not might not be coming from like always becoming. Eh, you know, complaint might not always be coming from a very heated, angry place. You know, not not everybody who complains is just like fired up and screaming. They might be doing it quietly. They might be doing it just completely normally. But what they are vocalizing is still coming from a place of anger. A complaint is, you know, inherently coming from some sort of, you know, disgusted or angry place. And uh, it's a, and we keep things alive through complaint. Especially if we can't do anything about it. I think that's where you have to be very careful is, you know, when you can't do anything about something, when it's truly out of your control, what you can do is complain, but it doesn't mean it's what you should do. And it's very difficult not to. And if you're around people who do that a lot, that becomes the currency. That becomes a form of social currency. And there are some people who really only communicate in various forms of complaint, just like there are people who only really communicate with other people who have the same fears they do. And you get this sick feedback loop. Sick, sick, sick. It's just like God's sense of humor, guys. It's just sick. It's just sick. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you get into these sick circles. Sick circles, sick cycles. Sick cycles within circles, circles within cycles. Um, and, you know... You might be you might have friends where you go out to the bar and you drink and the currency is complaint. You bring your complaints to the table, they bring theirs. And sometimes that's good. That's venting. And that's what I mean when you have to like kind of navigate this, you know, very uh, narrow passage where, you know, 
you need to express something. You need to complain about your boss because you can't get another job right now, and it's not that bad, but your boss does annoy you, so you want to say something just to get it out of you. And your friend, you know, is having trouble in their relationship, and, you know, they think this and blah, 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 so they've got to tell you about it, and that's healthy, and that's good. But it reaches a point where, you know, if people don't keep themselves in check, if they're not self-aware, they can very easily get sucked into this world where that's just all you do. And you actually don't even want to hear anything else out of the people that you spend time with. And they don't want to hear anything else out of you because what you do is you complain or you express, you know, just bizarre fears about what you read in the news. And you just exchange that information. You build each other up. And uh, it's... You know, it's easy to see. It's easy to do that with coworkers, and you can see other people doing it, and you can kind of tell. You know, you can kind of tell when people are doing that. Uh, and it's the same with gossip. It's very similar to that. And it, you know, it's what goes on at uh, you know bar rooms, taverns, everything around the country. It's what happens when people go out to lunch together. It's not like it's just something people do when they're. It's not. It's not like it's just a nightlife activity. It's what some people do all the time. It's their currency. But you got to get yourself out of that if you find yourself in that position. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you got to, I don't know. I, I don't want to keep going down that rabbit hole right now, actually. I think it's fairly self, it should be self-evident if you've ever been around people who behave that way or talk that way or who have created that form of currency. You know, some people have Bitcoin. Some people have these other cryptocurrencies. For other people, it's gossip. It's innuendo. It's complaint. It's, you know, this, you know, toxic exchange of information. But you can turn it, turn it around the other way, too. And if you find yourself around that, and, it, you know, it can creep up on you in weird ways. Because as a man, I almost feel embarrassed addressing this. Because I feel like this is a sort of, you know, behavior that's, you know, typically associated with the, the classic old hens. You know, you know, people who sit around just exchanging gossip, you know, and all that. And I think there's some there is some truth to that. I mean, you know, I'm not going to give any disclaimers one way or another when I say that in my experience, you know, women tend to be much more socially focused, not necessarily on their social status, but they tend to, in my experience, be more interested in what is going on between people, the people themselves and what is going on between people. And that's how we stay interested in things. You know, once again, you can look at the positives and negatives and you can say, you know, those old hens who do that, uh, they, on one hand, yeah, maybe some of them get into that sort of toxic cycle where they're exchanging, you know, this gossipy currency and it's, you know, it, it's just not good. It's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for the people they're talking about, you know. You know, while that's one side of it, I think you can also look at the other side and be like, you know, the fact, though, that these old hens are, you know, interested in people's lives is good because it takes interest in people's lives to care about them. And I do believe that women have, at least historically, cared more about people, taking care of people, people's well-being than men. And I think that <laughs> there's a lot of evidence to support that. I'm not saying women have to do any one particular behavior or be a certain way, uh, but I do think that women naturally gravitate toward those. And, you know, there's a good side and a bad side to 
any quality you have, you know, the, the thing that makes you strong can also be the same thing that makes you weak. And the thing that you think sounds very profound can be the very thing that makes you sound like a big fucking fool. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, don't I know it? Uh, but, uh, you know, in the same way that, you know, people can be like, oh, you know, all those old hens do is gossip and blah, 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 and share secrets about what's going on. Oh, so-and-so is getting a divorce and so-and-so's, you know, having an affair with, uh, you know, the, the dog catcher. <laughs> Hey, sorry. Hey, Jimmy. Uh, I, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you and your mom because, uh, uh, you know, she's been, you know, having an affair with the dog catcher. Uh, but uh, that'd be a good one. You know, if your wife's gonna cheat on you, it might as well be with the dog catcher. Uh, but uh, <laughs> how do you how do you follow that up? How do you follow that up? How do you follow that up? How do I follow that up? I know the dog catcher. He's a good man. Starting to sound like a King of the Hill thing. It's not intentional. It just happens sometimes. Just cartoon voices are creeping in. It's like no attempt at original voices on this show anymore. Just ripping off the most famous cartoons. I feel like that's what people do. That's how you get ahead in this world. You gotta just rip people off. Rip them off and rip them to pieces. That's the currency of my social group, baby. You wanna run with me? You wanna run with me and my boys? Well, the currency of our, of our social group is ripping people off and ripping people a new one. Ripping people apart. Hey, do you ever rip someone apart? You ever rip someone apart verbally? That's what we do over here. And you know what that means? That means we'll rip you apart, too. It means you, with groups like that, you basically have to be around each other all the time <laughs> to make sure nobody's talking shit about somebody else from the group. That's the sick thing about it. One of the many sick things about it is when people are in those situations, it's like you almost become codependent because not being there means you could be spoken about. And there's all kinds of, you know... Cliché but true, and many clichés are true, but there's many cliché but true quotes about that. The person who would talk, if someone talks to you behind someone's back, they'll talk behind your back. If someone, if she cheated with you, she'll cheat on you. It's all that same idea. It's all that same idea that people are preaching, and they're right, you know, or at least there's a, a high probability of it. Oh, you're the golden boy, you know, uh... You're the golden boy, you know, they, all your, you know, all those people who, you know, thrive off of gossip and innuendo, they won't talk about you behind your back, you know, you're the one person they all agree on. There's consensus says that you're the one person nobody talks shit on behind your back. Um, but, uh, I don't know, there's, there's been nothing going on in my life that would warrant this topic. That's the funny thing. It's not like I had some experience recently of like someone talking shit or anything like that. Someone talking shit. No, I didn't have anything like that, but I do think about it time from time. I think because I just, I observe it so often. It's something you can just, if you ever eavesdrop on conversations, even unintentionally, there's a high chance that you'll overhear something like this. But you can turn it around, and not in that sense that, like, let's get together and only talk about positive stuff. Because that's boring. You know, that's fucking boring as shit. 
that's the weird thing is acknowledging the positive is still even now at a more positive point in my life acknowledging the positive still seems somehow more boring but i accept the challenge but not in that you know rob brezhny sort of way you know i did i, I read that pro noia book at a very important time a couple of years ago experience sort experiencing sort of you know like some some level of you know, personal crisis, you know, not completely melting down, but definitely having some sort of weird crisis in my brain. And I read that Pronoia book, and it actually struck a very strong chord with me. And I've been a fan of Rob Brezhny's, you know, horoscopes. I think they're fun. It's again, an example of someone who I wouldn't want to be him. And I don't, you know, <laughs> that the way that guy sometimes chooses to express himself and who he is isn't who I would want to be necessarily, and it doesn't always resonate with me. Sometimes I roll my eyes, whatever. But overall, I, I like him. I like what he's doing and has to offer, and I like the message of his book. Uh, but what I don't like in it is like he's like, instead of the bad news... I believe in sharing good news. And there are these little segments where it's like, you know, in this part of the world, like somebody built like a, a bicycle out of popsicle sticks and used it to transport all the water from, you know, you know, the great reservoir to their village. And now they're able to grow crops, you know, it's stuff like that. That's good. You know, it's, I acknowledge the goodness of it. Do I want to read about it? No. <laughs> you know, does it involve me? No. Uh, no, but really it's, it's, it's that sort of thing where I'm like, you know, I like, the message of his of the book, you know, there's some great points in there, and I believe he's probably somebody who, you know, experienced a certain dark place in his life. I think, you know, most most powerful stories of change and just changes in mind, mindset and perspective. It doesn't have to be that deep. Just something as simple as a change in perspective often comes as a result of going through some sort of dark place. It may be lifelong. It may be short term. It may be something like circumstantial, like a breakup or a death or something like that that can take you down somewhere. But then when you come back up, you're, you know, you have a new perspective at the very least. And often it goes deeper than that. Uh, but, uh, you know, with Rob Bresney, you know, it's like I think he's probably somebody who has he's seen the balance of things. I think that'd be the best way to put it. And that includes, you know, the dark places you, a person's brain can go to. And with that in mind, it made me, you know, appreciate some, you know, some of the basic points he makes about just kind of reconfiguring how you see things. Reconfiguring like what you what you not just how you see things, but what things interact with you and how you interact with things and really realizing the impact that things like especially media has on you, how watching the news every night and paying attention to, you know, all of the horrors going on in the world, what that actually does to you. And that made me start to realize the other things that impact you in similar ways, including even music. You know, I think in some ways listening to depressive or negative music isn't always just a it's not always just like a, a way to like cope because you could think, oh, I'm feeling depressed. So I'm going to listen to depressive music because that tells me that other people feel that way and gives me some sort of tool for coping with this. But I think sometimes it can become a weird self-indulgent part of someone's identity where it's like, you know, I, I just, it's, it's just a self-perpetuating cycle and consuming all of that depression and idolizing musicians who have killed themselves or have, who have had severe problems or just have stupid outlooks on the world has an impact on you. 
And that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, be interested in those people. Uh, but when you put anybody on a pedestal, it's going to, you know, hurt you as well as them. It just it's, tends to be how things play out. Like if you put someone on a pedestal in a relationship, you know, and not the whole like, oh, you know, he treats me like a queen. You know, not, not that. You know, there's a difference between, you know, adoring and respecting someone in your life and putting them on a pedestal. Because when you put someone on a pedestal, you know, you might be adoring one minute, but then you want to tear them down. And it's what we do as celebrities and anybody with really any kind of fame or, you know, public attention. We put them up and tear them down. And it's a brutal process. And South Park illustrated that. They illustrated that with their little block cartoons very well with that Britney Spears episode years ago where, you know, at the end, the paparazzi's like, no, you don't understand. We're trying to kill you or whatever the joke was. He got the joke wrong. No, that's, I think that's a joke is that finally at the end, she's disfigured and it's like, why are you doing this? Like, why is the paparazzi doing this? Said, no, you don't, you don't understand. We're trying to kill you. It's that put you up on a pedestal, rip you down violently. Uh, keep it alive. Once again, back to the keeping it alive thing. Complaint, anger, it's a way of keeping something alive that you really don't need to in many cases. And, you know, if it goes beyond venting and it becomes, you know, pathological, really, uh, I, f I feel like you really need to start taking two steps back, you know, at a time. I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't think that's a phrase. Taking, you need to take two steps back at a time. That sounds like something somebody would say if they were trying to sound tough. Like some guy who's like a like a, a biker dad, but he's not really that tough, gets mad at someone at a bar and he's like, listen to me, you need to take two steps back at a time. I don't know. I'm taking two... What are you doing with your life, man? Oh, I'm just taking two steps back at a time. It's also like the ultimate chill guy thing. It's not just like... I'm not just resting. I'm taking... Just taking two steps back at a time, man. I'm leaning back so far that like my legs are are moving. Yeah, taking two steps back at a time. Taking two sips of soda at a time. <laughs> just a guy who who just says that about everything. I'm saying two things. I'm saying two words at a time, and you got to piece them together to form a larger set of words, and you got to read it twice. <laughs> uh, how about ending this episode? Uh, do I have anything else to add to the line of thought? Well, just the you know, I, I mentioned amusement, amusement, and you know, maybe using amusement as a currency, and not in the sense that you know, I'm amused by life, so I'm going to tell a joke to everybody I see. I'm going to be a walking popsicle stick with a joke just printed on my lips that I'm going to share with everybody. Everybody's going to hear my jokes. Because uh, you'll stop spreading amusement real fucking quick if you think that that's your, <laughs> your duty for the day. Uh, you know, there's some people who will get real annoyed with you if you think that's your duty for the day and you won't be amusing them. Uh, but, you know, you can choose to be amused by life. And spread amusement in the process. And I think that's different from everybody. But I do believe that amusement is really what the pursuit should be. Not amusement on a temporary level like amusement, uh, you know, amusement park, amusement. You know, we think of that as very temporary. But I think we should get away from this idea of temporary amusement. 
and just be amused by it all. And I think the more that we acknowledge that amusement and we live amused lives, the more likely that's going to become the currency that we have to share. And if people don't want your particular form of amusement or they don't appreciate the aspects of this crazy existence that you find amusing, that's fine. There are plenty of, you know, there's plenty of people out there. I mean, there's really no excuse to live a lonely life. And I do live a lonesome life, but I would say that that's separate from lonely. I think there's a difference between being a generally lonesome person and lonely. And I should probably look up the definitions of those words before I start saying that. Excuse me, I'm not lonely, I'm lonesome. It may just be that I like the way that sounds more than lonely. Lonely makes me think of needy, and as I like to say, neediness is not coming from a place of need, it's coming from a place of want. And I think uh, loneliness tends to be very needy. Seeking people. It's like that old phrase, you know, misery loves company. And I challenge that. I challenge that idea. I don't believe that misery loves company at all. I believe that misery hates company, but it invites it in anyway. And then it complains to it. That's what it wants. It doesn't want to actually have company come over and have a good day, you know, it doesn't want, you know, it, it wants to complain. And it the second you, st- this is, that's a funny thing too, is as much as I say there's this exchange, when you're dealing with misery, when, and when you're dealing with somebody who's miserable, who all they want to do is, you know, exchange this currency of anger and complaint, they often don't want to hear what you have to say, unless it's some sort of gossip they can use. And... Uh, there's no, you know, there's no exit from that situation. You know, there's no real, there's no clean exit from that situation, uh, which is why you just got to leave because eventually, you know, if misery invites you in, even though it hates company, it's not going to end well. You know, it's why junkies often don't have, you know, the best relationships, you know, junkie couples. And I don't say that like as some sort of insult or jab at addicts. I'm just saying the the truth. It's like, you know, when there's some sort of over, you know, when if there's some kind of overwhelming misery, a dark cloud over a situation, whether it involves one person or two people, you know, it generally doesn't end well unless one of those people is willing to let some light in. And that, how's that for, you know, fake profound statements that really just make me sound like an even bigger fool? They just have to let the light in. They have to let the amusement in, man. They have to they have to go to an amusement park for a day. You know what you're missing? The amusement park. Uh, but no, but misery hates company. It invites it in anyway. And they complain and they complain. And eventually they're going to complain about each other. And they're back to being alone again. But still, it's it's amazing to me that people can be lonely with the number of people in this world. And I say that as a loner. I don't say that as a person with a huge, thriving group of friends who is sitting here saying, like, I don't know what's so hard. I got friends all over the place. I don't, there ain't nothing hard about making friends. I don't know what's wrong with you. It's weird to me that you, that you don't make friends. You know, that's not me at all. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a loner by nature. And it is a lonesome life. And it is something to contend with. Uh, you know, you think about Ed Bruce's song, Mama, Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. And here I go with more lyrics. As a guy who can't remember lyrics, 
but you know, in that song, he says, you know, you know, cowboy's always alone, even with someone he loves. And yeah, I'm not sitting here saying like, oh, I'm just a cowboy. You know, I'm just a cow. Ed Bruce was singing about me. I'm not a cowboy. You know, I don't have some cowboy fantasy, but that does resonate with me. You know, the idea of being alone, even with someone you love, kind of dramatic. You know, uh, someone who goes around saying that, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm always alone, even with someone I love. I think you can choose to not be alone, though. I think you can make that choice. Uh, and I think sometimes if if you feel like people just don't want anything to do with you, I think it's a good chance to take a look at yourself and be like, what about me is repellent? And that's difficult because that's it's very easy to go down a path of self-hatred when you do that. And I think a lot of people fear acknowledging their own faults because they feel like it'll be a never-ending fall once they acknowledge one of their own faults. Like, if you were to be like, well, you know, I always do this. That can easily lead to, and that makes me think of this other thing I do, and that caused me to do this in that situation. It's just this never-ending tumble down the abyss where now you just, it's like, you let, there's there's all this self-hatred that's just been building and building and just been trying to creep under the gate and probably has. It's probably been filtering through and just, you know, slowly, you know, becoming a bigger part of your, bigger part of your life, just some sort of self-hatred. But then I think there's this fear in people that acknowledging, you know, taking responsibility, it's not just acknowledging, but I think some people don't want to take responsibility for their behavior or their faults or acknowledge the ways in which they can really overcome those faults because they would have to actually acknowledge the fault itself to do so. And acknowledging one fault means acknowledging a lot more faults and they feel like at that point, fuck it, I'm just, I'm just going to ignore them. I don't want to fall into some, you know, you know, abyss where all I do is think about how shitty I am because it's easy to do that. I'm not somebody who's experienced what I would call self-hatred, you know, but I do criticize myself. I do look at myself sometimes under a very harsh light. And I would say to anybody, you know, and I think this is an important tool to have, uh, you know, in, in just knowing people. If you're someone who wants to have people in your life and to know people, it, it's important to see yourself in a harsher light than other people will. I don't know. That didn't come out very well. Basically, it's like if someone ever you know, you know, know, offers you a criticism, it should be something that you hopefully have considered yourself. But in order to consider those potential criticisms, you have to see yourself under a very harsh light. And that's what I sort of mean about the fear people have. I think people fear to truly look at themselves under the harsh light. Because uh, they think they, you know, they might maybe I'll want to kill myself if I do that. You know, maybe it'll be really bad. Uh, but I think most people who have done that, who have really looked at themselves under a harsh light, and you can always, you know, it can always get brighter. You know, it can all, you know, you can always find ways to, you know, you, you know, you're always going to find faults in yourself. It's not like you see yourself under a certain light and that's the cure. It's like it's going to be something you have to do the rest of your life. At least I assume. I don't know. I haven't met those people who are like 70 years old and said, oh, you know, when I reached 35, it was all fucking perfect. Everything just was perfect after 35. Everything was perfect after 30. I've never met an old person who has that story. Generally, they say it's going to be somewhat of a struggle, even when things are going well. 
I don't know, they don't say that specifically, but that's the impression I get from a lot of people who have lived long lives, is that you're going to go through struggles continually. And I think if you're going to overcome them, you have to first look at yourself under a very harsh light and then act from there. See what I can do. What can I take responsibility for? What can I change? And if your currency is complaint and anger, gossip about people, about people's private lives, know that, you know, if you look at what you're actually doing, it doesn't even have to be about you. It doesn't even have to be about your heart or your soul or even your brain. If you just look at your behavior, at the product of, of what you do, your behavior, if you just look at that under a harsh light, that's a great start. Be like, look at this thing I'm doing. It doesn't make me feel good. I know it's not right. And you have to listen to your intuition with that stuff. And I guarantee you, most people, when they're caught up in some sort of, you know, when they're talking about something they shouldn't be talking about, there is something in their gut that is telling them they shouldn't be talking about that. And when they continue to talk about it, they don't feel good. I feel almost feverish when that happens. Like when I've been talking about something that like, you know, just sharing some information that I probably shouldn't have talked about with somebody... At the end, I think, oh, fuck, like, I almost feel like I have this fever wash over me. And my intuition is just, you know, all twisted up. Uh, so, a twisted up intuition, how's that? How do you measure that? How do you measure a twisted up intuition? I don't, what's he, he's full of shit, man. I bet he believes in God. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children...